You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. All right, folks. Hey, welcome to our first joint episode of season three. Isn't that right, Jared? That's correct. Right. What are we talking about today? I don't know. So if we're a little rusty today. It's Jared's fault. <laughs> okay. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I, I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Hey, our topic today is, is God's children tell the story. And some of you might be familiar with that phrase because I I like using it or something like it a lot because I think it communicates something very important. And it's even a a chapter title in the Bible tells me so. But let me put it differently. Let me put it in a less colloquial way, (laughs) what we're after today. And and this is the reason why we're talking about it is because I keep getting the same question, different words, different variations, but this is like a very difficult thing for people to wrap their heads around, especially coming from certain, let's say, church backgrounds, and I absolutely get that. So, let's take another pass at a topic that keeps coming up, it just won't go away. And what I mean by God's children tell the story is basically this, that the biblical authors are culturally limited. They're not omniscient. True, they're inspired. Whatever that means, quite frankly, I don't have my arms around that, but whatever involvement God has with that, it clearly doesn't obliterate their human limitations. And you see that in the Bible, and rather than thinking of that as sort of a problem that has to be overcome, or to sort of defend the Bible against these sort of more embarrassing moments, let's say, I I think part of the task of at least People who were raised in an evangelical or fundamentalist context who aren't happy with that anymore, I think part of the challenge is to look at this as a a positive thing and actually embracing the cultural limited nature of these biblical authors, embracing that as as a positive thing theologically that tells us something about the characteristic of the Bible, and dare I even say of what God is like. And, you know, Christians should be able to have this discussion, I think, Jared, because we got this other thing we can't quite explain well, but it's called the Incarnation, where God doesn't seem to be that interested in keeping God's distance from people, <laughs> but actually entering into it in some mysterious way. So, so there you have it. The Bible is just, it's, it's got these, it's just loaded with examples of how people were thinking about things from their point of view, where they lived, and what was going on in the universe at the time. I think we should jump into some of those examples, because the, the, the explanation you just gave, I think, needs some teeth to it, because it was a little, a little abstract of cultural limitations and just some of the words you used. I think it'll be good to jump in with some, and then let's come back out from that and say, okay, what are some of the implications of this, of how do we embrace this 
as a positive feature of the Bible rather than maybe, you know, how I grew up, which is to be afraid of it or dismiss it or embarrassed by it. How do we embrace it as a positive thing moving forward? So, what would be an example of this idea that the Bible has cultural limits, that God's children tell the story? Well, it's almost like open the Bible and put your finger down someplace and you're going to find something. But something that I – a story that I like to talk about with with people who ask this question is this obscure story in 2 Kings – who gets to Second Kings after First Kings? It's pretty much the same dismal story. But Second Kings chapter three, and this is you have this very interesting story about this king called Mesha. Don't fall asleep, people. All right, I'm not going to go on and on with history here. But King Mesha is a king of Moab. Moab is across the Jordan River, east of the Jordan, and he is rebelling against the king of the north. Sounds like a Game of Thrones episode almost. Yeah, the but game, the king of the I, North. Seriously, you talk about the, the king of the north, the king of the south. It's like, anyway. Well, but, and because of that, just just the 30-second the geography lesson or history lesson is the king of the north is the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Right. So, this is yeah. after the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom have split. So, yeah. when you say northern kingdom, we're still talking about Israel right. and Israel proper at this time. But the divided kingdom, not unlike the north and south during the American Civil War. There are a lot of analogs between the two. But, but so, the... The, the northern kingdom, confusingly called Israel, had been sort of over the Moabites for a long time. So, this King Mesha, he rebels. And so, what happens is the king of the north, whose name, I think, there are too many J names in the Bible, Jehoram, I think is his name. He uh, elicits the help of Jehoshaphat, who's the king of the south, aka the king of Judah, and also some unnamed king from Edom, which is right next door. And... To, to sort of squash the rebellion, and they're pretty successful. Eventually, they sort of hem King Mesha into a city, and he's behind the city walls. In an act of desperation, what does he do? He takes his son, we don't know how old he is, but he takes his son and sacrifices him to his god Chemosh on the city wall. And that's a weird story, but what's really weird is how that story ends. Uh, the, the final verse is something like, And a great wrath fell upon Israel, and they withdrew. Next story. No explanation needed. It's just, I mean, what do you conclude from that? It seems like from the point of view of the writer that he explains this unexpected victory on the part of the king of Moab, King Mesha, as being the result of something that happens in the divine realm. Well, it's it's in 2 Kings 3, from the point of view of the biblical writer, so therefore from the point of view of the Bible, Chemosh is real and effective – there's this effective way to access Chemosh through child sacrifice. No, that's not supposed to happen. Yahweh's supposed to win all the time, but the writer doesn't tell you, like, it's a given that this happened. The writer doesn't explain why it happened. And you can sort of, you can guess as to why Chemosh was victorious over Yahweh's people, partly because, according to First and Second Kings, Yahweh doesn't like the North very much anyway. But, of course, the South was involved, but, you know, God was not active in that battle in a way that he's supposed to be with, and I say he because in the Old Testament, this is a warrior God who's going to battle for people. You know, he, he was very active in Exodus and other places where, uh, you know, God is a warrior is a very big theme in the Old Testament. But th- the point is that, you know, the only question is why didn't Yahweh do something, not did this really happen? That is how these children, let's call them, the biblical writers living in their time and place, this is how they understood the nature of reality. And so, they attributed this victory to what would probably have come natural to, naturally to them. So They would have assumed that there were other gods in existence 
And that's the worldview at which they're portraying these stories. And we see that in a lot of places, too. We see it in, you know, Psalm 95, uh, you know, one portion of that is, um, for the Lord our God is a great God, a great king above all gods. And I like see the word Lord there, let's just pause on that for a second. The word Lord in English, when you see it with a capital L, and then lower, smaller capital letters, O-R-D, that, that means Yahweh. That's a way of representing the divine name. So, what you're really reading there isn't the Lord like some mysterious up there monarch, it's Yahweh. For Yahweh is our God, not Chemosh, not any of the other gods, not, you know, no, no one else. This is our God. For Yahweh is our God. He's the great king above all gods. And what makes him the great God? Well, this God is the creator, and this God also brought us out of Egypt. No other God did that. And it's never the case that, well, rarely, if ever, is it the case in the Old Testament, at least, that you have a clear declaration that only one God exists. I think you have to wait for that a little later bit. In the later yeah. in the prophets before you really ever get right. that. And even if, I'm, I'm not totally convinced it's even in the prophets, but it's, I think you're moving very clearly in that direction. And perhaps the experience of exile under the thumb of the Babylonians is what might have given the Israelites some notion like, these gods aren't real at all. <laughs> For, you know, I'm just guessing, who knows? But but the point is that it's it's ubiquitous. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Not, there are no other gods, right. you dummies. It only makes sense if there are competitors, <laughs> you know? And then don't make any idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. What do you, what do you have to be jealous about? Right. You yeah, know? these non-existent entities? No. No. I mean, you know, if... My wife were to go and say, I'm going on vacation for a week to Nantucket to sew quilts with old ladies. I'd say, fine, go ahead. If she said, I'm going away for a month to a shirtless male colony someplace, uh, I, would, I would have something to be jealous about. It would be a very different kind of experience. And I think we should take very seriously how God is being portrayed there. And, and I guess the, the question, Jared, that always comes up, is, and it's a good question, is God actually jealous? Or is this how God was imagined to be on the part of these people who were limited in their own culture, as I am, as you are, as all of us are? We're not more sophisticated, but we are different. We don't think quite that same way about God. And that, another way of saying, which is what we come back to, kind of the title of today, is God's children tell the story. If that's the case, then this is the kind of Bible we would expect. We're sort of matching with the data that we find with are the theory of what we're talking about. And not to jump ahead too much, but I think that, ex- that metaphor extends to all theology. We're always children trying to tell the story, and it isn't like, you know, we've broken free of all that, and now we sort of see things from the top down the way they really are. Our human limitations are always at work because we're human, and what if that's not a bad thing? What if the creator gets it? You know, <laughs> and is fine with just who we are and our imperfections and our trying to live into that reality as best as we can, given our time and place and who we are and when we are and where we are. And I, I look forward to the day, I hope, when a lot of people from my community that I grew up with can move from, I feel like there's this uh, view of the Bible that's reactionary, and then there's reacting to that reaction you know, like, the idea that we, we would be embarrassed by that anyway. Like, oh, this Bible is really human. 
I look forward to the day where we affirm that and we celebrate that and say, look at this relatable book filled with wisdom that's freedom affirming, that where God does allow children to tell the story. Like, there's some real beauty in that. And I think we've mm-hmm. come from this model where everything had to be pristine and perfect, right. that to have it not be perfect or inerrant, to use mm-hmm. the technical term, means there's something wrong with it. Right. And I think that's just, it, like, we would never say that about other things that are imperfect in the world because we understand that the world is imperfect. Right. But for some reason, with this one book. Well, because it's the Word of God. Right. Right. And therefore, it's not going to be like any other book, except for the fact, <laughs> why do we presume that God has a problem with a book being produced right. in the way other books would be produced? In the same way that why would we have a problem with the clearest expression of God happens to be a human being? Where do we where Jesus. do we get that? Because it's that's actually not how the Bible portrays God in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God's not portrayed as this perfect. Like in early on, he's got, in the he's early got his chapters, moods. he gets like yeah, he's yeah. moody. He's like he regrets that he created humanity yeah. and it grieves him. So we assume the Bible needs to be perfect because we have this view of God. That God is somehow perfect in this abstract sense, but the embodied God we see in the Old Testament is not like that. Yeah, God's like the perfect math equation or analytical yeah, formula right. or something. That's that's sort of like, you know, talk about imagining God out of your own human limitations. We do it all the time. Even though we think this is a very lofty view of God, it's actually maybe a rather ridiculous view of God. <laughs> Which, you know, maybe we can work with that, who knows. But, you know, we're, and we're in practice no different from ancient Israelites or the writers of the New Testament where, I mean, how can we but help but our humanity come into the picture? The simple fact that we speak languages, you know, and we, I mean, and and we're, I mean, Freud was right. Most of what we're even about is like under the surface, we're not even aware of it. Like, you can't wrap your arms around that and say, I'm going to stop being human now, right? And again, whatever view you have of inspiration, whatever you think it means, or God revealing things to biblical writers, whatever that means it definitely does not mean obliterating those human limitations because you see it all over the place. I mean, there isn't – I joked before, like, put your thumb down someplace and find something that exhibits human limitations. It really is all over the place. Well, you mentioned yeah. metaphor even. How can you go through a page or two of the Bible without finding a metaphor? It's all metaphor. And metaphors are culturally limited. When right. they say, you know, you are the potter. Right. Like, how much – how much do you spend of your day around pottery? Right. Like back then, that would have been pretty ubiquitous. Right. It would have been everywhere. It would have made sense to a lot of people. Like yeah. now it makes sense to the pottery community, I guess. Right. So like God's really only catering to the people. Or who God are... is a shepherd. Right. Right. God is I've a shepherd. I've never shepherded anything in my life. Right. We had seven animals at one point, but even that, I didn't shepherd. I don't know what shepherding is like. And, and frankly, yeah. I wonder, there probably are people I think would argue, well, that's still common enough, but... I, I lived in an inner city once where we had goats, and the inner city kids there had no idea. They thought it was like a funky dog. They had no idea. They had never <laughs> seen a goat. They had never been taught about right. farm animals. So, I think don't think we can make that assumption. Right. So, so I, mean, I guess whatever the metaphors are, they're metaphors, which means even king, right? God is a king. God is a covenant stipulator. Like all ancient monarchs were, you know, so, or, or God is a warrior. Is God a warrior? Is God really a warrior? Or is God like a warrior to these people who are experiencing life the way they were, you know, as, as long as maybe 3,000 years ago? 
God is not a potter, but God is like a potter. See, the, to me, that word like is all important because that, again, suggests that, hey, I, I hear you, folks. I, I hear you're engaging and embracing God in the only way you're capable of through your humanity. Well, the word like acknowledges the limitation in it. Right. You're right. saying, well, there's an end at which point God is not like. Mm-hmm. Every time you say God is like, you're also saying God is not like. Mm-hmm. Where if you say God is, there is no, there's no limit. Well, what about, can, can we say God is love? What do you think? Well, of God course is we can like say, love? I don't know. <laughs> God is like love. Well, I mean, okay, because God is love because you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But, you know, like in Deuteronomy, that's not... Come on, give me a hug. Well, it's, that's the thing. I think we can say God is love, but the word love right. changed over millennium what right. we mean by that. Right. I don't think the ancient Israelites could envision giving God a hug. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I'm not being flippant about that because I, I see, you know, memes and stuff where Jesus is hugging people. That's a little different though because that's the humanity, you know, and but but still it's – And like, also we, a few thousand or a thousand or fifteen hundred years later. Right. Right. So that even the New Testament is culturally different than the Old Testament. Exactly right. And what they mean by love is different too. Yeah. But, you know, love is – it can have emotions attached to it. But we shouldn't assume that God is love meant the same thing to ancient Israelites as it might mean to people today. And who's right and who's wrong, maybe the creator can handle both of those or all of those. Maybe it's just we're just grasping, and I to me this is thrilling and positive. We're just grasping for language to try to somehow give voice to our experience of God, and maybe the Bible's like that too. You know, of course that that steps on some toes, which I don't mean to do intentionally, but isn't the Bible different at all? Well, that's a good question. We can talk about that again. I can't think of too much in the Bible that cannot be explained in some sense in terms of, let's say, anthropology or, or the development of human cultures. Now, some people might be throwing their iPhones against the wall right now, but again, if, if that's a bothersome thing, that doesn't mean we stop thinking about it. Maybe this is a way into something bigger and deeper, not necessarily bad. And as we talk about this, what if God can handle this conversation we're having right now? And even if we're wrong about 80% of what we're saying, that doesn't matter either. We've got to think about this stuff, right? A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at 
upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, and maybe going a step further, I'm going to push this a little further. I don't, I don't necessarily like the idea that God can handle it because that assumes that it's a negative thing right. that God's putting up with mm-hmm. or tolerating. Yeah. I really like the phrase, God's children tell the story, because it has all the like really positive celebratory parts to it. Like mm-hmm. God is involved. It's God's children. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we get to be God's children in that phrase. We have a voice because we're the ones telling. And then there's a story that we fit in. Mm-hmm. It's just a really nice, I don't think God can handle it. I think God's more than okay with it. Maybe like parents watching their kids in a play or something like the camera's rolling right so excited yeah. did you see that yeah. did you see that because a yeah. little a little terror because you don't yeah. want them to trip over and you know make a fool of themselves right but also that definite positive like mm-hmm. if we if we and i i love the eastern orthodox and i love this move at least that you and i are making a lot more toward wisdom if we frame it as a wisdom story mm-hmm. you can't grow up without the potential for making mistakes and that's the excitement right. of parenting, and right. that's the beauty of it. Yeah, there's some fear and dread in there, mm-hmm. but without that, you end up stifling that freedom, and you right. stifle development and growing up. Okay. I mean, I agree with that, but I can imagine someone saying, but listen, read the Bible. There's a lot of God throwing orders around, you know, and mm-hmm. it's not, let's grow into this thing together, but no. I'm the sovereign and you're the people, and here are my commands, and if you obey them, you will live. Right. If you disobey, you'll die. Right. But that just brings us right back to the same question. Is this how ancient Israelites are thinking of God, given their context? Now, see, then you can say, okay, given that context, how is what they're saying, are there distinctive marks to that over against let's say, other cultures of the time. It'd be really nice if we had, like, super clear answers to that. I'm not sure if we do, but... Even as something as weird as the well, as weird as the flood story, it's not really weird. But you know, we have you know Mesopotamian versions of this story, which are much older than the biblical story, where it's the fact that the humans are making too much noise, and the gods created them to do the work for them because they don't want to, they just want to sleep. But now they can't sleep because they're making too much noise down there. You know, in, in the biblical story, it's Adam gets to work in the garden. It's not like a forced labor because Yahweh doesn't want to. It's more like sharing something. And 
the reason for the flood isn't that, well, they're making too much noise, but there's a sin issue, right? So it's, and even though it seems like a really over the top reaction (laughs) to the fact that Mm -hmm, people are being mm -hmm. human, but still leaving that to the side, there is a different theology there than you find in these other stories. So that's distinctive. But here's the thing to remember, those distinctives mean nothing unless you assume the same world that they're both assuming. They're still assuming the same way of looking at things, but their theology is different from that. And I I think it's just very, very hard to escape that. And you can have examples like that throughout the Bible where, oh, that's interesting. You know, you might not hear the Assyrians say something like this, but you hear the Israelites say it. And that's great, but that doesn't mean that the biblical writers are not limited by their humanity and when they write, because they certainly are. Hi, everybody. My name is Dorsey Marshall. I'm from Mullica Hill, New Jersey, and I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. One of the things I love about the podcast is the diversity of guests who offer so many helpful ways to think about what the Bible is and the role it plays in helping me understand the nature of faith. As a supporter of the podcast, I've come to treasure the community and excellent conversations that take place in the Slack group and on the Patreon feed. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in this important work. The podcast is brought to you by supporters on Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com backslash the Bible for normal people. If you're not able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. That can go a long way to help others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who give feedback to Pete and Jared, encourage them for the many ways they get it right, and offer suggestions for ways to make the show better. I'd like to mention Chrissy Florence, Logan Jansen, Matthew Tringali, Matt Sutton, and Brad Harris. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Thank you. Now back to the podcast. So how do we read? How do what's a reading strategy, or how do we value the Old Testament? Because I could see some people saying that just sounds like almost like there's a trajectory here, and the closer to our time that we get in the biblical story, which really you know climactically is Jesus mm-hmm. and all of that, that becomes really relevant because it seems like if we're having this developmental sense that we're growing in things and mm-hmm. God's kind of getting more and more loving in the way we think of it as we move along, like why not kind of dismiss the Old Testament altogether and say, well, that their understanding of God was just wrong, basically, and Jesus kind of corrects all of that. How do we not fall into that, or is that an okay thing to fall into? Yeah, I mean, I don't think Jesus corrects as much as we might, some might think that he does. And, and the connection between the stories of Israel and the story of the gospel, they're, they're, they're dominated by this thing theologians talk about a lot. There's continuity and discontinuity between those stories. That's sort of the, the energy that makes theology go. You've got this Bible that it's not either or. It's not like, well, these things don't fit at all or they fit perfectly. It's not this evolution, let's say, to where – and now the clarity is here in Jesus because one of the most remarkable things in the New Testament since you asked is that – the earliest stories we have from the New Testament, nobody's getting along. Peter and Paul, and I think James can't stand each other. Well, well, Peter and James have real issues with Paul. Paul, as something, you know, within 15 years or so, maybe, depending on how you read this chronology in Galatians chapter 2, which we won't get into here, but let's say between 15 and 20 years after Jesus was around, 
they're disagreeing on a fundamental question, namely, what about Gentiles? Do they have a part of this, an equal share in this without becoming Jewish first? And that's like a pretty important question, like who are the people of God? And no one's settling that for them. Whatever Jesus said didn't help. They never say, hey, as Jesus says in the Gospels, the Gospels were written, this is like the 40s, maybe around 50, and they probably weren't written until the 60s and later. You know, it's just you you have this thing where they have to try to figure it out, and they're doing it in, in this pressure of their moment and with the freedom of trying to make sense of this thing in their time and place. You know, you you don't have this smooth transition, you know. And you've got things where, you know, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And then you have the book of Revelation, people getting wiped out left and right. You have a dialogue within the New Testament, just like you have a dialogue within the Old Testament, and just like you have dialogues between Old and New Testament, because what we're watching is people putting the pieces together in their time and place, in their moment, in ways that are, I think, very encouraging to us when we say, I'm not really sure what God is up to. Well, join the club. This is as old as our written It's a book of solidarity at that point, not yeah, answers. Like, exactly. Yeah, well, we have a whole host of witnesses who would right. attest to the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And so, maybe the point, again, is rather paradoxically to find ways to, which is not easy, but to trust God rather than thinking that this book is streamlined and simply tells us what's on God's mind, rather than looking at it as that has a, obviously, the human production of it is, is central, just like Jesus was born, you know, <laughs> and was a real person with olive skin and wore sandals and spoke probably three or four languages. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's the same, it's analogous, at least, those two things, you know. Yeah, as you're talking to, I'm just going to plug, if you want more on that, how the New Testament doesn't, and how some way categorically different. I know Brent Strawn in our second season kind of goes off a little bit on a on a rant there. So right, go right. listen to him a yeah. little bit more on that. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I like I like this idea. Again, I want to come back. I'm still kind of processing this out loud a little bit, but this idea of the freedom affirming nature of this i of understanding of God's children tell the story that it mm-hmm. it allowed like there's certain people personality-wise, who like structure and really just want to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. And there are certain people who, like me, would buck against that at every turn. Mm-hmm. Right? And and so, we're, we have to also just take into account how we're built. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate the freedom-affirming nature of that. Mm-hmm. Like, when I was growing up, it was very stifling to right. say that there is this one way and then there was no creativity. There's just, you got to figure out what the right, right way is. It's all mathematical. Right. And then to kind of discover that, oh, maybe God's children tell the story. Hey, wait, I'm God's child. Right. I get to tell a story too. Creatively. Use creatively. that word creatively, right? Yeah. And that can be this really beautiful thing unless you've been conditioned to think that you're not capable of thinking for yourself or mm-hmm. being creative or partnering with God right. in creating new things in the world. And that also, I mean, creativity is, I think, a very important concept and also curiosity. It, it strikes me how watching you know people reading the bible that there there's curiosity that's missing like well you, you ever, can't have you ever curiosity you said this what does that mean did you ever think about that before no not really no didn't think about it nope i'm not going to you know well be curious about this but curiosity know? by definition is ignorance if if i say i'm curious i'm saying i don't right. know right and in some circles it's not okay to say i don't know right 
And so you can't be curious. Yeah, and the irony is that people who uh, – I, I don't mean to like generalize here, but I've known people who claim a very high view of God, a very high view of the faith, a very high view of scripture who are utterly lacking in curiosity and creativity. And the irony in that is, not to be snooty, but read the Bible. <laughs> For heaven's sake, just, man, I mean – Read the story of David or read some Psalms and just you can see like, why why are we going into all this detail? And David looks sort of like a jerk right here, you know, like, no, 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 David, Jesus, descendant of David, there's nothing like that there. You know, he's a perfect ruler. Well, this these these different voices that clearly, I mean, not, not to get on David too much, but clearly the writer of First and Second Samuel had a point. He's trying to get across. And one of those points seems to be best king ever, real problem. <laughs> you know? And and why would he do have that point of view? Well, it doesn't matter because God wrote it for me. Well, okay, you're a reader of this, but why did these writers shape this the way they did? What were they trying to say? That's a question of curiosity. And the answers to that, I mean, you can say on one level are academic, but they really stem out of a creative curiosity to sort of like put these pieces together. Which I think true scholarship is. It's actually acts of creativity. You're creating meaning somehow from these texts. And and I just think the Bible is just – it's set up to make us think that way. It, it simply resists that control thing that you were talking about. So, let's move beyond maybe for a minute, beyond the Bible. God's children tell the story. I mentioned a minute ago, well, I'm God's child. What stories do I get to tell? Like, what's the – Lately, I've had a number of people who come who raise questions to me of like this canonization thing is just a problem because right. <laughs> we're just basically saying there's only these, and if God's children tell the story, we have had a you know a few thousand years of not getting to tell any more story here. Mm-hmm. So, how do what 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 are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I mean, just practically speaking, you do we can't need to really, have a new Bible? We it'll never happen. I mean, a new Bible will never... We need to become so influential that we could publish it and it would become the standard. Well, I like to think of my own books as sort of like... You know, <laughs> but, you know, there's... I, I'm trying to remember who did this, but it, it I, I caught wind of this like in the 80s or so, and there was a movement called the Third Testament, which was telling the stories of more contemporary people of faith and their wisdom and things like that. And as I said, a cute title, Third Testament, but, you know, we don't have... We only have two, not three... However, see, if, if you look at the Old Testament as the story of Israel, and then you look at Judaism, what it does with that, it's clearly dependent on this, but it also recognizes, of course, Judaism is diverse, but allow me that. Judaism will see the complexities of it, and their whole tradition is built off of furthering the tradition somehow. I'd like to think of the New Testament as a similar kind of thing. It's actually trying to further that tradition in a particular direction, in a Christological direction, in a Christ-centered direction. But is all the work done by the time you get to the end of the New Testament? The answer is no. How do I know that? The history of the church has written a lot and has, has sifted through this stuff and has come up with all sorts of creative angles. 
Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose and it's just my throat hurts and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double action combination of prescriptive strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So in a way, in a certain sense, Jared, I mean, just maybe this is too weird to say, but in a certain sense, it's not just about there's one testament and then another, and now we have it all. It's like we've got two phases of this trajectory where maybe the spirit is active in the church in all its plurality, in all its diversity, just the way God has embraced the plurality and the diversity of the four gospels, of the different letters of the New Testament, where James and Paul come to opposite conclusions based on the same story of Abraham, right? Read Romans 4 and Galatians and then and then go to James chapter uh, whatever it is, 2 or whatever, I forget. Or, or in the Old Testament, the diversity that is there, the plurality that we see in the Old Testament. Maybe, maybe see, that that's why embracing the reality of the human limitations of the writers opens up at least this avenue for, for connecting with this Bible, not as a rule book or a source book, but as these models and people bearing witness to their own triumphs and struggles of faith, right? Yeah. Which, you know, just, just very briefly, you said before, like, why deal with the Old Testament at all? To me, that's one big reason, because we have more in common as, as Christians today, we have more in common with the Old Testament in many respects than the New, because they're like hundreds of years and hundreds of years, like, when's God going to show up? Is this even worth it? The New Testament is much more constricted. It's over a few decades. And the New Testament writers, and expecting, like, this is going to come to an end real soon. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul is expecting, you know, the time of the Gentiles to be fulfilled and the Jews come back, the one big happy family should happen any minute, don't don't buy insurance, don't get married, it's going to happen real soon. But none of those things did happen, right? But they thought it did. And so, that, that, see, that human limitation, that human context of the New Testament writers affected how they talked. You know, in a way, maybe we share their triumphal notion in some spiritual sense, but not. it's not in the same way that they may have thought about mm-hmm. it in this context of persecution and Jesus is going to rescue you any minute. We have more in common with the Old Testament. It's like God hasn't come to our rescue in generation after generation after generation, whether it's in Egyptian slavery or in the exile or even after the exile waiting for some king to show up to take them out from under the thumb of the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. It just it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. That's why I mean that's why you look at these as stories that model the broad 
reality of what faith means, you know? And I think all the great theologians at some point or another say something like that, you know? Well, I, I hear it as another positive element of God's children telling the story is that it's the Bible then becomes an invitation. The limitation becomes an invitation, right? Where I grew up thinking the Bible was this totally unrelatable thing. Like the world of the biblical characters were so foreign mm-hmm. and miracles happen and God just showed up every day and all these things. It was like this fantasy land. Mm-hmm. And now I'm supposed to extrapolate to real life from that. Mm-hmm. But if you put the human face on the Bible – it becomes rela- it becomes an invitation to say, no, you can do what we do, which, frankly, Jesus says, hey, you'll come and you'll be doing even greater things than I've done. Right. Like, there is an invitation it even in Jesus' right, life right, right. to yeah. do that. So, one thing I, I wanted to say, I'll have a little theory here, and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm off here. I go back to uh, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Mm-hmm. So we've talked about this quite a bit. It's really, okay, what's our faith ba- based on? What are the foundations? We have these four things. We have the Bible, we have reason, we have experience and tradition. And in some ways, if you you just mentioned phase and something clicked in my mind where you can almost call those different phases, right? So, you have the Bible, which can be phase one if you're Jewish or phase one and two, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a Christian. And then you have tradition, which is basically all the writings that happen after the New Testament, Mm -hmm. which is kind of phase three. Mm -hmm. And then you have your own reason and experience, which Mm -hmm. is sort of phase four. Mm -hmm. So, you're always interacting with those that we have a relationship with those back and forth. So, in some ways, they're there. Historically, you can kind of phase those out. Like, tradition is what we have. Like, I have 38 volumes of church history that capture the first 300 years of the church mm-hmm. after the New Testament. So, I could stack those next to my Old and New Testament right. and kind of have a 40-volume mm-hmm. thing. And then I have to go into the Middle Ages, and I could have a 1,000 more volumes. And then, you know, in the explosion of the printing press, I could have 100,000 mm-hmm. more pages mm-hmm. of the canon, mm-hmm. so to speak. And then at the end of that, I have my own reason mm-hmm. and my own experience. Right. Which is not an imposition because that's us being human and it may be the sacred responsibility of the church to do that, Mm -hmm. right? It's not the problem like, oh, no, you're using your reason. Okay, I'll stop. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) I don't know how, but I'll – I will stop using my experience. I will be an ex- – because, you know, I mean, Jared, we both heard and, and I know a lot of people listening have heard too, do not trust your experience. Well, don't trust yourself, don't trust your reason, don't trust your experience. Or your tradition, just the Bible. But see, part of the genius of the Wesleyan quadrilateral is that the Bible is not just there by itself either. You understand it through tradition and reason and experience. And nothing has been truer in my life than that that reality. And and sometimes it's our reason and our experience and hopefully our tradition that also lets us embrace the mystery of faith and of – what God is doing, and even the Bible itself, so that we're not thinking that, you know, it's just this obvious pamphlet that God dropped down and just find the right verse and do something, and then you know you're right. And those those concepts go hand in hand, because when we say the Bible is culturally limited, all we're saying is that it's impacted by reason and experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's what what cultural limitation means. Right. So, the question is then, jumping to Jesus, was Jesus culturally limited? Well, in the sense that you just named. Yeah. Right? He had a specific skin color, and he wore sandals, and he spoke certain languages. Right. Which I think we can't underestimate 
the importance of language right. in how we see and create the world. Right, right. And to say, you know, and you know, Christmas time just passed as we're recording this, but you know, in Jesus, God became man. And I tell my students, no, he became a first century Jewish man <laughs> in yeah, a Greco-Roman context. You have to, because that's that's um, what I know. A, a number of theologians. I'm trying to think of who said this, and somebody can comment later. But it's the scandal of particularity. <laughs> you know, it's it's the fact that it's not just any old. Mm-hmm human it's a man first of all living in a particular point in time and more of the scandal the particularity paul talks about jesus you know becoming a slave even subjecting himself to the humiliation of crucifixion i mean these are all particulars of the kind of man that jesus is and you know the crucifixion is not really relevant for this but to think that jesus wasn't culturally limited i would want to make the case that's borderline heretical <laughs> uh, is Jesus human or not? Or is he just playing at the game? Well, it's not. I mean, historically, that would be heretical, right? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that would have been declared a heresy just just as saying that God was only divine or only human. Mm-hmm. Those are both declared not okay. I mean, that's part of the mystery of the faith. We don't. Really, that's why I don't like using the incarnation as a basis for arguing because I don't understand it. I don't even know what it means half the time. <laughs> and you know, I know people want to explain it to me, but you don't know it either. So let's just get <laughs> that off on the table. So you know, so you don't want to get a bunch of emails that give you some wonderful know, analogies, like lectures like the Trinity, on where they give you like the egg. And yeah, all or that. or just you know. <laughs> anyway, but it's it's not that I don't care. It's just that I I I'm comfortable with. The not knowing of all that stuff. I know, and that's your problem right there. I got enough problems in my life. That's the problem. Beyond that, believe me. But yeah, I mean, this, this whole thing is a sin of uncertainty, Pete. We're, I know. Children telling the story, and we're talking about Christology and the nature of Jesus and what he knows and what he doesn't know. And, you know, I, I always, when this comes up with, especially my first year students, I ask them, do you think Jesus knew French, right? Or he knew how to use a stove, right? And the answer is, no, I don't think, I think there are plenty of things Jesus didn't know by his limitations. And being omniscient is not prerequisite for being the Messiah and the Deliverer and the Savior. It can't be. So, if we're going to allow and, in fact, insist on the human limitations of Jesus himself, how dare we (laughs) keep the Bible sort of under a glass someplace where it's not exhibiting that when on every single page, you can't find something that's cultural-less, Right. Well, I mean, the Bible itself says that Jesus, what is that in Luke? That Jesus grew in wisdom. Yeah. You can't grow in wisdom if you already know everything. It's an impossibility. But then he stopped when he was 18 and he grew his beard, as Brad Jerzak said. And when- <laughs> right. But I think that's important. Like, the Bible itself says Jesus grew in wisdom. So, we don't have to, like, do a lot of searching to find out mm-hmm. whether Jesus was culturally limited or not omniscient mm-hmm. in that, in, in some sense. Whether and he then, was human or not. Right. 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 I mean, he mm-hmm. grew in wisdom. And so, then to bring, that, to bring that over to the Bible, it's like, well, if God didn't, if God's interaction with Jesus wasn't one where Jesus was automatically this perfect, like if you're going to create a perfect thing in the world, mm-hmm. you're probably better off trying to create a human rather than trying to create a book that uses humans to yeah. do it. <laughs> right. So if we don't even get that over here, uh-huh. why would we expect it in the book? Right. It makes right. no sense. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of our time. I think we was quick. 
I think we have, I mean, we've pretty much solved all the problems of the Bible. And created a few others, but that's what we do here yeah. at the Bible for Normal People. Yeah, we create problems. <laughs> oh, you think you got problems. <laughs> we're we're going to give you, we're, you're going to forget your problems real fast. We'll, we'll give you more. more problems, better problems. Yeah. That's a great uh, That's a great thing about the podcast. And people, you're going to like it. People think that they're getting answers, but really we're just asking more questions. I get, do you, I any comments occasionally? You guys ask a lot of questions. We give a lot of answers. <laughs> hey, man, we're, zen, we're, we're very zen about this. <laughs> the, the answer is the question. It's the better question. Ever hear Socrates for heaven's sake? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, excellent. Well. All righty. Okay. Well, we uh, yeah. Th- since this is our first joint episode, I think mm-hmm. we can say like we hope you enjoy the rest of season three. We have a lot more mm-hmm. conversations about the Bible, what it is, uh, how do we read it. And yeah, a lot of fun guests. Yeah, coming up. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. One more thing before we let you go, it may come as a surprise to you, but Pete and I don't do everything together. We have some speaking gigs coming up where we'll each be in different places. So I will be in Nashville this coming weekend, February sixteenth and seventeenth at Sparrow Day Church. S P E R O D E I. For anyone who wants to look it up, I'd love to see some of you there. And Pete will be in Washington, D.C. on February 25th at the Politics and Prose Bookstore. He's going to be promoting his new book, How the Bible Actually Works, which I hear is decent. I think I hear it's an okay book. So uh, just kidding, Pete. It's going to be great. Love to see you there. February 25th, Politics and Prose Bookstore. If you aren't able to make it to one of those, we do hope you enjoy season three. We'll see you next time. See you, folks. Bye. Bye.